And I know that there are people listening to me right now and you feel God has let you down. You were disappointed with God and you have hardened your heart ever so slightly. And today my appeal to you is, will you turn and face God and ask Him to do something in your heart? Because I want you to hear His heart in this. Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. When a king makes a speech, mostly people listen. In the New Testament book of Matthew, there are a number of Jesus' speeches recorded during which he shares some life-changing insights and he makes reference several times to the need for his words to make an impression on our hearts. Tonight is the first in a five-part series titled The King's Speech. Tonight, Dr Corbett is in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 13 to begin looking at kingdom living. His message, So What?, We're going to be looking in the the, the first story that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 13. But before we do, we need to give some introduction to this. This is an invitation to the king's banquet is kind of how I'm paraphrasing everything Jesus is saying. It's about his message is about life. It's about the kingdom and it's about eternity. And I'm going to suggest to you they're about the three top most important things that there possibly could be in all of life. So the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are called the Gospels. If you are a follower of Christ, you will have heard that term. You would be familiar with that term. And the Gospels simply mean good news. And the Gospel is this. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He grew up a sinless life. He ministered. That is, ministry means to serve. He served people. He, was, he taught and he was then taken and crucified. He died. He was in the tomb for three days and rose again and commissioned his disciples, then ascended into heaven. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And just like any really good story, it's always good when you get a different perspective. And the gospels do just that. They give us different perspectives. The Gospel of Matthew, which we'll come to in a moment, has a perspective. The Gospel, Matthew, Mark. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. So if you're ever in a Bible quiz and they say, name four of the 12 disciples, don't say Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, because two of them weren't disciples. Mark wasn't. Mark was an eyewitness. He hung out with the disciples. He would have been about 12, 13 at the start of the journey, maybe 16 years of age by the time Christ was crucified. He was there. He was in the, the background. In fact, he, he shows us he was there in his own gospel, the gospel of Mark. There's a, a reference that he puts to himself there. And then Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke wasn't one of the disciples either. In fact, Luke wasn't even Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. He, was, he calls himself a physician, a doctor. And Mark is, is the shortest gospel. Mark is written... To Romans, and Mark was probably the a PA, the personal assistant to the Apostle Peter. And when he wrote his gospel, it was really Peter's gospel. Peter's giving him insights because Mark wasn't in the upper room. Mark wasn't alone with Christ. Peter was nearly all the time. And so what we have in Mark is the shortest gospel. There's only 16 chapters. So if you know someone who's a real Aussie, I think Mark is also written to Aussies because it's just don't give me the fluff. Just get straight to just get just tell me how it is just straight away. 
Mark doesn't start with genealogies. He just launches straight in. And it's about Jesus. Every chapter has Jesus doing something. Then Luke. Luke is a doctor. And this is the thing I notice about doctors. And I, I know that this is true. of, of, of We have about uh, uh, 700 doctors in our church. <laughs> and... And this is what I know about every one of the doctors I've ever met. You've got to have a phenomenal reserve of compassion to be able to hear people whinge and moan and ache and pain and all the rest of it all day. And Luke was like that. He was very compassionate. He was really concerned with people. And so he describes Jesus with that sense of compassion. In fact, he describes Jesus. The word Jesus and compassion appears more in the Gospel of Luke than anywhere else in the New Testament. It, he describes Jesus, Luke describes Jesus as someone who was lonely, someone who thirsted, someone who was hungry, someone who seemed to be, shall we say, anxious. It looked like Jesus was concerned just before he went to the cross. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Luke describes this. He shows the humanity of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then there's John. John was the youngest of the disciples. He was probably around 16 years of age when Jesus chose him to be one of the 12 disciples. And John, he's, he's writing his gospel with, with, with a phenomenal uh, perspective. And if Luke is writing with compassion, Luke is not writing to Jews Jews weren't really interested in compassion. They, they were interested in something else. And that's about genealogies and it's about who was your mother, who was your father, all that kind of stuff. And that's what Matthew's about. Luke is writing to people who aren't Jews. They don't really care who your mother was or your father was. They just want to know what you're like as a person. And John is writing to people of his day, the Greeks. And the Greeks, they, what they really cared about was the ideas behind things. It's called philosophy. Philos means, or philo, sorry, means love. Sophie, so if your name is Sophie, where is Sophie? Sophie, anyone know what the name Sophie means? Where are you, Sean? Sean, what does Sophie mean? Trouble. Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is an alternate rendering, and it means wisdom. So philosophy is the love of wisdom. And Greeks were right into the love of wisdom. They were really into deep thoughts and all the rest of it. And they saw all kinds of rich meaning and symbols and things like that. And particularly the number seven. The number seven in, in Greek philosophy was kind of this really, really awesome number. Because seven is complete after all the seven days in the week. And when God created everything, he created in six and rested on the seventh, thus completing his activity of creating. And, and so Greeks would describe things in terms of seven as being perfect and complete. And the, and the Gospel of John is... I, I wonder, because the Greek in the Gospel of John is, is shabby. It, it shows this person was not a Greek thinker or a Greek writer himself. And the, the Greek is very basic. And so when, when you're learning... Greek, often it's, it's really handy to use his gospel because he doesn't use a whole lot of big words. It's, it's very basic, but the concepts behind it are utterly profound. So the gospel of Matthew, what's this about? Because this is where we are now. The Jews were longing for something. They were longing for someone to come that had been promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. They call that person the Messiah, the anointed one. Anointed just simply means given strength from God. It's a picture in the Old Testament, the, 
the prophet would, would take a, a, a bull's horn and fill it with a mixture of olive oil and some spices and, and then pour it over the head of the would-be king. And, and it would be a picture of the Holy Spirit giving strength, oil giving strength to do something for that king. And so whenever we say, oh, that person's really anointed, really, that's jargonese. And if you don't know our jargon yet, give it time. We'll, we'll jargon you up a bit. And, but it means, when we say, oh, that person's really anointed, we mean what they just did, they could only do if God had helped them to do it. It's strength from God. And the word Christos, Messiah, it means the anointed one, the one given strength and power from God. And they longed for this person to come to drive out the Romans, to kick the Romans out, to establish the kingdom that David had established. After all, this is what the prophet Amos had said would happen, that the Messiah would come and reestablish the tent of David, the kingdom of David. So the kingdom of God is a really, really, really big deal in Matthew. It's a really big deal. And it should be a big deal for us too because it constitutes so much of what the Gospels is actually all about. And in this section, we're having a look here in Matthew chapter 13. I kind of want to jump in now. That's okay. And, 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 and I'm calling this so what? And you'll, you'll see why. And we're in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking from verses 1 to 23. We're not going to be too long. You'll get the idea in a moment. But, but let's do this. We're in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. It says this. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. That's verse 1. Now, I hope, and if you haven't already done it, maybe I can help you do it. Notice this. That same day. That same day. Hopefully, you're reading this and you go, what same day? What day? And if you back up a few verses, and Matthew's telling us, because sometimes the chapters mark a, a completely different month, a completely different phase in the life of Christ. But in this instance, Matthew is saying, no, 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 no. This happened early in the morning. Something had just happened, and this happened immediately after it. Hmm. So what happened? Well, here's what Matthew tells us in the, the last Verses of chapter 12. It's, and if I can paraphrase, it goes like this. Jesus was in a house, just someone's house, and he was teaching the people. He was te- and then someone comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, your mother and your, your brothers and sisters are outside wanting to meet with you. And what happens next is astonishing. And I know most of us read it and go, oh, that's lovely religious flowery talk. But let's come, come, come on, come back with me in a time machine. We're, we're, we're sort of in this house. We're, we're, we're just outside. We're just, maybe we're outside. We're looking through a window. This, this room is packed with people. There's Jesus in the position of a teacher, which means he's not doing what I'm doing. He's seated. And there he is. He's seated. And they're, and they're probably standing. This, is, this was customary for the way... Teachers and students would interact. The teacher would sit and the students would stand. It explains why when Augustine preached, he only ever preached 15-minute sermons because that was about all the people could stand up for back in those days. And so here's Jesus doing his deal. Mary, her other daughters and her other sons, after she had Jesus, there's Jesus teaching, your mother, and, and Jesus says, who's my mother? 
Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? My mother, my brothers, my sisters are the ones who hear what I say and do it. And then Jesus does this. He gets up and he walks out of the house. Nothing dramatic about that. But who does he walk past? His mother, his brothers, his sisters. If I was one of the disciples, I'd be looking at this going, what's going on here? What's all this about? I would be bewildered. I would be stunned. Jesus is gone. If I'm one of the 12 disciples, I'm thinking, well, a disciple means a follower. I suppose I should follow. So Jesus goes down to the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and there he is. He's, he's there. And he picks a vantage point on the slope going down to the lake. He's come down and he's there. And he says, come on, just gather around. And by this time, it said, it, it, it'll tell us a large crowd gathered. This is early in the morning. And Matthew tells us it's the same day. It's, this is happening right now. And the, the Greek is really interesting. He writes it in present tense sense. It's as if we have a CNN reporter on location reporting live. It's present tense, continuous. This is happening now, is the way Matthew's describing it. And now we come to verse 2, and it says this, And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. So there he is. He's got the crowds on the embankment. He's in a boat. He's just offshore. He's now positioned himself, and he sat down in the boat, the position of a teacher. And he's got this natural amphitheater that will capture the, the casting of his voice. And we're the disciples, and if you're Peter or John or maybe Andrew, you're probably in the boat with Jesus because it's probably your boat. And it says in verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying... Now get this, he walked past his mother, he walked past his brothers, he walked past his sisters. He's now on a mission. The Jews are longing for the kingdom. He's about to announce, this is when my campaign for establishing the kingdom commences. It's so important. It's more important than my mother. It's more important than my brothers. It's more important than my sisters. What I have to tell you is more important than you will ever hear anything else in your life. This is the most important thing you will ever hear. And he launches in to his campaign to instigate, initiate the kingdom with these words. Do you, do you get the gravity? Can you see how easy it is just to read the New Testament? Oh, this is, this is religious. Oh, it's a parable. Oh, lovely and flowery and religious. Can you get the tension in the air? There's something that the king is about to say. This is the king's speech. Now, you need to know it says that he told them many things in parables. What's a parable? A, a parable is a parable. Is kind of a picture with words. And it's a picture with words that we, we, we need to understand because I've heard people look into these parables and they try and sound like, and, and God bless them, they, they try and sound like really knowledgeable, impressive 
Bible teachers and they, they're telling you that, that you know, uh, there's different fine detail and this is symbolic of this and symbolic of that. And by the time you're done, you go, that, that parable is not even recognisable anymore. These guys have sound, found so much symbolism in all of the little detail. And can I tell you that for the most part, that is just utter rubbish. That is not how you read parables. It's not the way Jesus intended for them to be read. And I'll, and I'll show you why in a moment. A parable usually, whenever Jesus gave a parable, and he's the only one who did in the New Testament, they usually had one point. And it's really, really important that you don't confuse the points. Because in one of the parables, he talks about a mustard seed, and it has a point. It's, the point is how small it is. It's tiny, like really tiny. But in another parable, he uses a mustard seed again. This time, his point is not how small it is. His point is how quickly and how big it can grow. Two different points. And it's important not to confuse the point. So when we read parables, we've got to ask our question, what's the point? What is Jesus trying to tell us here in the parables? And in this instance, there is a point. And how do we know that? Because Jesus gives us the point. So let's read this parable and let's see if we can get what's so important. Remember, there's tension in the air. I don't know if we were to glance over at Mary and Christ's brothers and sisters, of which there were at least four brothers because they're named, and at least two sisters because it says, and sisters, so that's at least two. So this is what he said. A sower went out to sow, verse 4, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear, Jesus says in verse 9. That's the parable. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably read it, you've probably heard it. And I'm going to suggest to you this is one of the most profound things Jesus ever said. And here's why. As we look at it, we do need to understand this is so important that Jesus himself cannot risk you misunderstanding it. This parable is so critically important to him that he goes on from verses 10 down to verse 17 and explains the parable. And that's how I know the parables have one point because Jesus, whenever he did that, he only made one point. And there is a point to this parable and hopefully the point is clear. Firstly, Jesus says the seed is the word of God. It's the message that God has for you. And the word of God is sown on soil and the point of the soil is it's our heart. Our heart, Jesus said, can either be one of four conditions. It can be a path that is trodden and it's become hard. And I get that. The hurts of life, the disappointments of life, the betrayals of life, they can all harden our heart. Sometimes we feel God's done that to us and we, we harden our heart. And our heart becomes so hard, nothing can penetrate. Then there's the soil that Jesus described as like rocks. 
It gets in and it kind of looks like it's planted and it grows up, but it really didn't get much soil in its roots. And when the, the heat of the day comes, it gets choked. And then Jesus also said it can be like soil that looks really, really fertile, but it's got lots of weeds in it. And Jesus says these are the cares and the pleasures of life that choke the life out of that seed that's taken root. What are the cares and the pleasures of this life? You don't have to think too hard, do you? It's, it's anything that you draw pleasure from that squeezes Jesus out is a weed in your heart. And then Jesus said there are people whose hearts are good ground soil. Good ground soil is soil that is ploughed up. It's been well watered. It's been fertilised. It's soft and it's rich. The word comes in and and, and that seed gets in deep and it takes deep root. And, and, And more happens underground than what people see. And then eventually the roots give it that structure that it can grow. And Jesus says, they're the people I'm looking for. And they're the ones that are going to reproduce and be fruitful. And they'll be fruitful, what is it, 30, 60, 100 times more. Here's the question. What's your heart like? Because Jesus says entering into his kingdom starts in the heart. Entering into his kingdom starts with the heart. And listen to what he says to the disciples. Because they said, why do you speak in parables? After these people, they can't understand what you mean. And then Jesus tells us in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And notice how Jesus finished off the parable, let him who has ears hear. Which is a really strange thing, because mostly it looks like we all have ears. And here's what Jesus is saying. Your heart does more than pump blood. In fact, your heart, I'm using this word, cardia, the heart, to be the the core of your soul, the center of who you are, that, that source of where your will, your emotions, your decisions, your desires reside. And in your heart, that core of your soul, you have ears. And Jesus says, some people have put their fingers in their ears and they refuse to hear me. And he says, don't do that. If you have ears, I want you to hear what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. And that tells me this. You can call yourself a Christian. You can even be a Christian. And you can refuse to hear what God is saying to you. Notice the, 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 the seed that gets into the good ground soil is the seed Jesus says is they hear the word, they receive the word, Because they understand the word. And we'll come to this in a moment. And notice Christ's heart. This is, I think, really, really profound as we understand his heart for us. Verse 15. And he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. For this people has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And notice the fruit, notice the result, notice 
what happens when we open our heart. And I know that there are people who feel God has let them down. And I know that there are people listening to me right now and you're even in this room. And you feel God has let you down. You were disappointed with God and you have hardened your heart ever so slightly. You've allowed some rocks to come in. You've even allowed some weeds to come into your heart. Because you don't trust God. And today my appeal to you is, will you turn and face God and ask him, to do something in your heart because I want you to hear his heart in this. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Verse 15, notice the last part, and understand with their heart. So not only do you hear with your heart, not only do you see with your heart, you can understand with your heart. Watched a, a, just a, a terrific Pixar movie, Pixar There's some Christians at the very top of Pixar, and boy, they do a great job. But here's something that Pixar did. They showed this, and they used this word. There are are certain emotions that reside in our mind, not in our brain. I'm thinking, this is a kid's movie? This is profound. This is really profound, because this is what we read in Scripture. As a man thinks in his, what's the next word? Because I expect it to be mind, but it's not, is it? As a man thinks in his heart. You see, the Bible says the way you process stuff, the way you process life is through your heart. We all have ears, and every girl does this. You don't even have to be trained to do this. A guy can say something to you, and he means actually what he said, just as a clue, by the way. And yet a girl will hear that with her heart and hear something completely different. Now, that could be good, that could be bad. Most of the time it's bad. But there's, there's an ability for a woman to hear things because women are far better at listening with their heart. You notice how many women-to-men ratio there are in churches generally? There's more women. Because the gospel is fundamentally about the heart. And most blokes haven't learned to listen with their hearts. And Jesus is appealing to that. But notice this. And understand with their heart. Notice the last part. And turn and I would heal them. And let me ask this question. <laughs> the parable of the sower. Jesus has just given it and he said this. If you will hear it, if you will understand it, your heart will be healed. You see the kingdom of God becoming a Christian which is another way of saying entering into the kingdom of God happens in our heart. It's a matter of what happens in our heart. Can we look at the implications here of this story? Then, I just, I'm, then I'm done. The implications of this story means that if you want to follow Christ, it's about your heart. It's about always having an open heart to God. It involves understanding, which is why I think the teaching of God's word is really, really important because it helps us to have receptive hearts. It shows that our heart is a matter of not accident, not, oh gee, you were lucky to be born with a good ground soil heart. None of us are. Your heart is cultivated. It's what rocks you allow in your heart. It's what rocks you ask God to take out of your heart. It's what weeds you allow in 
your heart. It's what weeds you ask God to take out of your heart. Your heart is cultivated. And sometimes disappointment comes in and we go, that's it. I, I, I don't want anything to do with other... I'm not going to home group anymore because they didn't put sugar in my coffee. <laughs> or whatever. And we let something get into our heart that stops us from being healed. How can you tell if someone's got good ground? Jesus says they reproduce 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Being in God's kingdom means you're working toward a heart transformation. In fact, it requires it. And when your heart is transformed, and I've got to tell you, I've been, I, I felt like an like last four weeks, I felt like a whinge. People say, say, how are you? And initially it was like, oh, sit, take a seat. Did you bring a cut lunch? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and then after a while I thought, oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be like that. A good ground heart reproduces in others and cares for others. It requires a heart transformation. And let me close with this thought. Does Jesus have his way with your heart? We live in a world where we are just so reluctant to give anyone our heart. And I get that. I understand that. But you've got to let Jesus have his way with your heart. you just got to. Does Jesus have his way with your heart? That's the first instalment in this series, The King's Speech. Next week, Dr. Corbett continues with We'd Better Not. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, So What?, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania, 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.